patriots, freedom fighters, throat Saskatchewan across the country, and the few around the world. How are we all doing? Good to see you, Gary. Good to see you, Suzanne, Sharon, <clears throat> Lynn, my good friend, survivalist landsman, and his wonderful daughter, Tatiana. Say hello to Tat for me. Morgana, Marina, Larry. Hey, Larry, good to see you. Uh, Salim's not here yet, but he will be here about 20 minutes from now. Hey, Chuck, Carol, Zed, good to see you, Zed. Jolanta, Princeton, Princeton, BC, very nice. I used to hunt around Princeton. Got a deer around Princeton one year, back in the day when I was living in Maple Ridge. Hey, Kathy. So, Davos 2023 is in the books. Uh, lots of good footage came out of there. Al Gore losing his marbles on stage, making a complete fool of himself. That was fun to watch. Um, and tonight we're streaming on four Facebook locations. YouTube Twitter, Rumble, and DLive. Hello, Rumble. Hello, DLive. Unfortunately, those folks don't take part in the chat that we see. So that's uh, unfortunate, but more that I see. Uh, and we're also streaming to TikTok. Hello, TikTok. Good to see you uh, on my phone. So, yeah, lots to wrap up, lots to talk about this uh World Economic Forum, Davos. Uh, hello, Dominique. Good to see you. Al Gore looked like Alex Jones in that clip. Yeah, a little bit. Sounded a little bit like him, too. Uh, yeah. Al Gore's getting a little long in the tooth. Um, sounded a little crazy. Yes, Tatiana, it's about time you showed up to one of my live streams. Good to see you. Someone summoned me. <laughs> I bet he did. Hey, Lorraine. So, yeah. Hello, Jolanta. Lots of deer. See them in town like Prince Rupert. Yeah, no kidding. Laura Mainline rocks. You know what? I... I uh, I was more than happy to get out of the Lower Mainland. I spent four years there when I was working at the Joint in Maple Ridge. And I uh, I was going to transfer to uh, to the new Joint that they were planning on building back in the day, but they it got scrapped. Uh, then they ended up building in Oliver a new Joint. But they, built, they were building a new Joint in Prince George at the time as well. So uh, I transferred up to Prince George, spent another four years in Prince George. Um, so yeah, I'm not a big fan of that lower mainland. I just, you know, you take a, a, a stubble jumper like me, a flatlander from Saskatoon and you stick him in the lower mainland. Um, I remember I had a girlfriend, I was in Maple Ridge. She lived in Burnaby and I literally, of course I was young at the time too. Um, I would pick up a six pack of beer just to make the drive from Maple Ridge to Burnaby 
um, you know, late afternoon rush hour. Uh, it was insane. Uh, it, it, way too stressful for me. Too many people, too crowded. Um, just not not for me. So I was I was more than happy to to move up to Prince George and into the bush. And uh, of course, four years later, I ended up moving back to Saskatoon. Uh, so I was just talking about that with my wife actually. Because I had this thing, and, and it drove me crazy, the amount of money that BC cost us on a, on a monthly basis, uh, just, you know, for insurance, just for everything, and, and the taxes. And then they had this air care thing, um, which was, which was uh, crazy. In order to insure your vehicle, you had to go through these air care depots, and they, you know, find all these things wrong with your vehicle that you'd have to you know, go to a certified mechanic and get these things fixed. It was just, bring cash is BC. Yes, said it was six beers away. Exactly. The commute from Maple Ridge to Burnaby <laughs> it was six beers away, 100%. But that was a, that's back in the day. So anyways, Davos is in the books 2023. Lots of interesting footage came out of there. I kind of enjoyed Rebel Media's uh, uh, hounding of Borla, the Pfizer CEO. I kind of enjoyed that one, as well as the Greta clip. That was kind of a fun clip, too. Um, so, interesting times. But I, you know, before we get into all this discussion, uh, I did a short video earlier today because it it really bugs me but i i thought i'd bring it up again uh in the live stream tonight so um I, you know it's important that I, I keep hearing especially from you know the rebel news types the uh the uh true north andrew lawton uh ezra you know, those, and they do good work. And I, I don't want to um, throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to these independents. But I, I, I do understand that they're carrying water for the Conservative Party. In a lot of cases, they're not much different than mainstream media carrying water for the Liberal Party and covering the Liberal Party and doing exactly what the Liberals want them to say. And so the independents, it seems, are attached at the hip to the Conservative Party in a, in a lot of regards. And, and, and I want to be fair as possible. Um, you know, I don't want to stomp all over them because they do do some good work and some important work. So I have to stress that. I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But when it comes to... So the Conservative Party has no problem denouncing the World Economic Forum, right? In fact, Pierre Polivar made a big to-do about him banning all of his MPs from attending uh, in Davos this year. <coughs> and, of course, all the independents picked it up. And they ran with it. But unfortunately, what I see happening is this hyper-focus on the World Economic Forum. 
that concerns me because it's not just about the world economic. And I see it and I see how it works and I see how effective that narrative is because I see it throughout social media. The only time anybody talks about globalism, they talk about the World Economic Forum because obviously they're supporters of the Conservative Party and the Conservative Party only ever talks about the World Economic Forum. And their independent media that carries their water only talks about the World Economic Forum because that's what Pierre Polivare has chosen to denounce. But what's really frustrating to me is that people need to understand that the World Economic Forum is simply a support mechanism for the much greater sustainable development agenda, Agenda 2030. That is the pinnacle of everything the World Economic Forum does. They are guided by that agenda. And people really need to understand this. And when the Conservatives only talk about the World Economic Forum, it's because they, the Conservative Party, is responsible for committing to the Sustainable Development Agenda, Agenda 2030. That's why they only talk about the World Economic Forum. And they can sort of get away with doing that and not being able to swallow the responsibility that goes along with committing our country to the Sustainable Development Agenda. In 92, under Mulroney, they made it law in 2008 with the Sustainability Act. And signed it again September 27th of 2015. And so they are doing whatever they can to avoid anybody making the connection between the Conservative Party and the globalist agenda. I want to show you... So we all know this. So this is the World Economic Forum and UN Signed Strategic Partnership Framework. And understand that this was in June of 2019, six months before um, COVID. And so they signed this agreement in June of 2019. There you see June 13th, 2019. And, uh, but they've been partnered in this globalist agenda for decades. The same people that created the Sustainable Development Agenda or first conceptualized it was in 1968, the Club of Rome. And Dennis Meadows wrote the book, co-wrote the book, Limits to Growth, with his wife. And that's the foundational piece for sustainable development. At the same time, the same people that sponsored the Club of Rome, the same people that sponsored the book written by Dennis Meadows and his wife, are the same people, along with Henry Kissinger, that tapped Klaus Schwab on the shoulder to start the World Economic Forum as a support mechanism 
for the sustainable development agenda. And so they've been partnered all this time, right? And so they made a big to-do about this partnership in 2019. And on the face of it, we'll take it for what it is. It is a to-do. The UN Forum Partnership was signed in a meeting held at the United Nations headquarters because the United Nations Sustainable Development Agenda, Agenda 2030, the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, are in fact the pinnacle of all, all globalist agenda, of all globalism. It's the pinnacle. It's everything. Headquarters between the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and World Economic Founder and Executive Chairman Klaus Schwab to accelerate the implementation of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. So, and sorry, TikTok, I'll show you that as well. Um, that's what we're referring to. Um, this is just an article on the World Economic Forum website that shows us um, that partnership. So they partnered to achieve the goals of sustainable development, right? And it's 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 the UN isn't supporting the World Economic Forum. It's the other way around. And it's really important that people understand that. That the pinnacle to all of this is right at the UN, at the agenda. And this is the World Economic Forum agreeing to partner to accelerate the implementation of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. The partnership identifies six areas of focus financing the 2030 Agenda, which we know they're financing it through a carbon tax and carbon pricing scheme. We know that. Climate change, health, digital cooperation, gender equality, and empowerment of women, education, and skills to strengthen and broaden their combined impact by building on existing and new collaborations. The full partnership framework can be found here. So I'm going to put this into the chat. And uh, you guys can go through it yourself. I, I don't need to, to go through all of it. But there's a couple of key points I wanted to point out. The World Economic Forum and the United Nations signed today a strategic partnership framework outlining areas of cooperation to deepen institutional engagement and jointly accelerate the implementation of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. The framework was drafted based on a mapping of existing collaboration between the two institutions and will enable more strategic and coordinated approach towards delivering impact. The UN Forum Partnership was signed in a meeting held at the United Nations headquarters between Secretary General Antonio Guterres and World Economic Founder and Executive Chairman Klaus Schwab. Meeting the sustainable development goals is essential for the future of humanity. <laughs> In actual fact, it does the opposite. And stay tuned for the production we're putting together, myself and three others, 
um, where we go through each one of these goals and how each one of these goals is going to affect every aspect of your life negatively. It's going to destroy us as a nation, our sovereignty, our prosperity, our way of life, everything we cherish, our freedoms, our liberty, uh, equality under the law, prosperity. and tr- It's going to destroy all of those. Um, the World Economic Forum is committed to supporting this effort and working with the United Nations to build a more prosperous and equitable future, says Klaus Schwab. World Economic Founder and Executive Chairman. The new strategic partnership framework between the United Nations and the World Economic Forum has great potential to advance our efforts on key global challenges and opportunities from climate change, health and education to gender equality, digital cooperation and financing for sustainable development. Rooted in UN norms and values, the framework underscores the invaluable role of the private sector in this work and points the way toward action to generate shared prosperity on a healthy planet, redistribution of wealth, in other words, just to translate that for you, on a healthy planet while leaving no one behind, said Antonio Guterres. So uh, I don't need to go through any more of this, um, but this is why I'm concerned that our independent media that is so favorable to the Conservative Party of Canada, never discusses the sustainable development agenda, the SDGs. Now, I shouldn't say that. Sheila Gunn-Reed actually did uh, a short bit on the SDGs a number of years ago. So, uh, you know, I don't want to completely... I don't want her to completely um, be thrown out because she has covered it, but it's been a very long time. Nobody in the independent media circles talk about what really needs to be talked about. And, And so that's why I'm concerned. And it's up to us to force these independent media outlets to talk about it. And we have to call them out on social media. We have to, you know, pressure them to start talking about the SDGs, the Agenda 2030, and what the pinnacle of all this is. It's not the World Economic Forum. That's a support mechanism for this overall agenda. So why aren't they talking about it? Well, they're not talking about it because the Conservatives are responsible for it. So if Ezra or Sheila, or anybody else at Rebel, or True North, Andrew, or anybody there, um, were to talk about it. Another another shill that has completely gone south after taking his 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 payout is Brian Lilly. Brian Lilly used to actually talk about the SDGs quite a bit. He used to talk about the UN agenda. He's completely shut off, shut it off. He doesn't talk about it at all anymore. Um, and they need to. And they need to. Regardless of the focus that it's going to put on their precious Conservative Party. Because 
sooner or later, we have to hold them accountable for committing us to this agenda. I mean, after all, um, it is their responsibility. They are the ones that did it. So, um, hang on, I just got to send Salim a link. All right, done deal. So, uh, yeah, so I just, I wanted to address that first off the hop here tonight because um, they have to talk about it. And, and so I'm going to put it out there to Ezra and to Andrew and to all the others. Um, if you're interested in discussing the pinnacle of the globalist agenda, Agenda 2030, the SDGs, I'd be more than happy to come on to your shows and have a discussion about this agenda, the pinnacle of globalism, the number one reason our country is swirling the bowl at the moment, and why there's an attack, and why Pierre Polivare is agreeing to a carbon-free future, <laughs> and why Michelle Rempel is traipsing around calling everybody haters who's critical about drag, king, drag queens reading to kids. Um, it's all related to this agenda, all of it. So is it that the, that the Conservative Party is still committed to it? Yes, they are. Uh, Pierre Polivare won't even acknowledge it. He won't even recognize that it exists. He just tells everybody he has no idea what it is. Um, and all of the provincial premiers do exactly the same thing. They play stupid. Oh, I don't know what that is. I've never read it. Yeah. Hogwash. They have. They know. And they're fully compliant with it. Which is why the conservatives are running around saying the things they're saying. Because they are committed to it. And then people ask me, well, well then who do we vote for? <laughs> well, there's only one party federally that is fully and 100% against this agenda. It's on our website. We've made the claim. It's there to read in black and white for all to see. We're the only party that does it. We're the only party that says it. Then I get people making excuses for the conservative. Well, they can't because they'll be called conspiracy theorists. Why? Why would they be called conspiracy theorists? It's right here in black and white. Go to the UN website. If anybody calls you conspiracy theorist, take them, show them the UN website. Show them the sustainable development agenda. Show it to them. It's right here. It's right there. SDGs.un.org. So if they call you a conspiracy theorist, Pierre Polliver, or the conservatives, or all you people that are using that as a convenient excuse, here's the website. Here they are. 1 through 17. There they are. They're all right there for everybody to see. This is what your conservative party has committed to. In 92, made it law in this country compelling our governments to now report to an unelected, unaccountable foreign entity, the UN, and then signed it again in 2015. 
September 27th. I mean, it's right here. It's not a theory. Yet, there's still people in the media, there's still politicians that refer to this as a conspiracy theory. And we're seeing the fallout of all of this insanity. We're seeing Soji in schools. We're seeing the attack on our industry, on our energy industry, the cheapest, most affordable energy on the planet, and extracted the cleanest possible way in, in, in Canada. We lead the world in that regard. So why are we destroying our sovereignty? Why are we destroying our prosperity? Why are we destroying our freedoms for this? For communism slash fascism on a global scale. That's exactly what this agenda represents. It's not a theory. There's nothing theoretical about it. We have a law in this country <laughs> called the Sustainability Act that was created. I went through it last night on my live stream. That was created in 2008 by the Harper government, by the Conservatives. We have law governing the implementation of this agenda in Canada. It's not a theory. There's nothing theoretical about it. So stop it. It's real as rain. It's the pinnacle of globalism. And we have to address it. And we have to force our politicians to address it. And talk about it. And the Conservatives won't touch it because they're responsible for it. <laughs> and still very much committed to it. So... There you go. All right, without further ado, my good friend Salim Mansour is going to join us to discuss uh, uh, the last week at Davos and, and, uh, and what's going to happen moving forward. So without further ado, how are you, my friend? Good to see you. Yeah, I'm very good, uh, Mark. Is there an echo? I was just going to check uh, if you keep talking, I'll ask the room to let us know if they hear an echo from you. Okay. But it, on my end, it sounds good. All right, then, then I, I was just asking you to clarify. Yeah. But you, you hear me okay? Yeah, I hear you fine. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not picking up any echo at all. Uh, Zed says, a few people are saying there's, a, there's, a, there's an echo. I'm, I'm not sure why. <laughs> Neither am I. Okay. So, um, you, you began talking about, I believe, the World Economic Forum and Davos 2023? Yeah, let me just let me just try something here. So I'm going to switch my microphone uh, over to another setting. And you guys let me know. Salim, keep keep talking a little bit and yeah. we'll see if we can fix it, this. I, I don't know if there's an echo or if it's coming through, but you had mentioned that just last time when we were. So you have to confirm. Apparently, we still have an echo. We have an echo. Okay. Still echo. Still echo. I'm going to take out my uh, external speaker and let's see if that does it. Okay. No, there's still an echo. <laughs> I don't know what what 
why this is happening. Yeah, I guess it's, I guess, you know, I can still, uh, I can still mute me when you're talking. So we'll, we'll just, we'll fix it that way. Okay. okay. But, but, but my volume is okay on your side. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, this is 2023. Um, Davos meeting, I believe has come to an end and we can make an assessment of what this year the Davos meeting was all about. Um, there have been a number of major issues, both inside and outside the Davos forum that uh, we can touch upon very briefly. And um, uh, also put this particular meeting in perspective of the larger events taking shape in global politics, which is of course, <laughs> The war in Ukraine, which is now a full-fledged um, U.S.-led NATO war against Russia. Russia is not fighting Ukraine. Uh, Russia is at war, or rather the West is at war, collective West is at war with Russia. And that has a, going to have a profound effect going forward, in my view, on... Um, uh, the World Economic Forum and, and, and what about it. So, yeah. What are your thoughts, uh, Mark? To yeah, begin with? so I, I think it was a bit of a gong show, actually. Um, you know, I saw Al Gore and, and his crazy speech on, on stage there the other day. Uh, he looked unhinged. And I think, obviously, by design, he's trying to, you know, proclaim this crisis that's, that's uh, they're manufacturing out of thin air. Um, so they're, they're trying to, you know, impress upon everybody that's watching that it's this emergency and this crisis. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I think everyone sees through it. And then we saw, you know, Albert Bourla, the Pfizer CEO, getting questioned by Ezra, which was kind of fun to watch. Of course, he didn't answer any questions. Uh, why would he? Um, and and then when Greta Thunberg was in was chased down by the same people, and that was somewhat entertaining as well. But uh, so I think all in all, it was it's going to be perceived as a bit of a bit of a gong show. I, I I think they failed at what they were trying to do, um, you know, and that's with the critical thinkers in our in our country and 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 people that that appreciate the truth. There is a segment of our population, obviously, that will buy all of what they were selling, uh, hook, line, and sinker. So, you know, I guess it depends who you're talking to, how this whole thing worked out. But I, from my perspective, I saw it as one big uh, failure and, and farce, quite honestly. Yeah, I think, I think you're pretty much on the mark. Um, the people who came to the 2023 Davos meeting, um, is in itself an instruction of what is happening. <clears throat> there was no head of government or head of state uh, participating in that discussion. Of course, you know, we were represented, that is, we mean Canada was being represented by Christia Freeland. Um, <clears throat> but I did not see, uh, you can correct me if I'm mistaken, I did not see any heads of government from any of the G7 country uh, present. Uh, people who were present were 
either former politician like Al Gore or Tony Blair, um, but there was no Macron there. There was no uh, Olaf Scholz there. Or was Olaf Scholz there? I, I'm, I'm not quite sure, the German chancellor. Um, <clears throat> but the, the British prime minister was not there. And I don't think 90% uh, of Canadians will be able to mention the name of the British prime minister. Um, <clears throat> the New Zealand prime minister resigned uh, before the uh, conference, uh, before the World Economic, that is Jacinda Ardern. So she's out. Um, so she was not there. Uh, I don't think the Australian prime minister was there. But very significantly, in the past meetings, in the past year, uh, before the COVID um, era that began in 2020, um, there would be... Uh, participating number of heads of government, not only from the Western world, that's Europe, not America, but there would be also people coming uh, from the global south. I mean, the Chinese president has participated. Xi Jinping has been at the Davos conference in the past. Uh, Putin has been in the Davos conference in the past. Uh, Donald Trump went there in 2018, I believe. So it is very significant that none of them were there. And that, of course, is also indicative of the war that is going on and the concern about that. Of course, the Chinese and the Russian wouldn't be there. Uh, they are decoupling from the West, from the collective West. I mean, um, Russia has completely decoupled. I mean, Putin has announced that uh, Russia is officially canceling all the treaty uh, that Russia had signed after 1992 with um, the Council of Europe and with individual European countries. So that is all the sign that there, Russia is not going to participate anymore with the Western governments. Uh, and it is all going to build up uh, what is now taking shape, that is the <clears throat> alliance with the BRIC countries. Uh, and I think the same thing holds true for the Chinese. They won't be there. There was no Indian over there. Uh, so the people who came were significantly uh, people of the second tier uh, in governments and unelected politicians or politicians who had once time been elected leaders, but they are no longer elected leaders. And I think that's one of the reasons that when we see people like John Kerry and um, um, you mentioned the name, Al Gore, uh, we see them as basically deranged people. I mean, uh, John Kerry was talking about uh, very proudly that, you know, the people that he was addressing are in that sense extraterrestrial because they care so much about the planet. I don't know if you picked up on that, you know, and, and he's, of course, the climate czar. So for uh, Joe Biden. But these are people who, and this I would like to underline, have been rejected by their own electorate. Algo was rejected in the 2000 election and he's never recovered from that. Uh, he lost to uh, George W. Bush. Uh, and then John Kerry uh, lost to George W. Bush in the 2004 election. So these are 
politicians who have been rejected. And I think the rejection created the derangement, you know, uh, and they have not recovered from that. So they are going around the world preaching ideas that their own people have nothing but contempt for, you know. Uh, so well, I think and, and Salim, uh, more to do with sort of it, my opening, I don't know if you caught some of it, but what I was trying to impress upon everyone is, uh, you know, yeah, I, I think the World Economic Forum, given the circumstances and situation this year, lost a little bit of its luster. Um, but I, you know, people need to recognize that that's not the pinnacle of the globalist agenda. The, the World Economic Forum is simply a support mechanism for the overall agenda. And we see that in the language, you know, between the UN and the, and the WEF partnership back in, in June. And I mean, let's face it, as you well know, they've been partnered from day one on this. And, and that was basically just uh, a formality um, in, in June of 2019. But, but in this, it says very clearly that, um, you know, there's a meeting held at the United Nations headquarters. So that tells you exactly where, where things sit. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, World Economic Founder and Executive Chairman Klaus Schwab, to accelerate the implementation of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. So it's very important that people understand that the World Economic Forum is acting and serving its uh, a, the UN's agenda. It's not. It's not the other way around. The, the, the World Economic Forum isn't the pinnacle of this agenda and, and you know, responsible for destroying our prosperity in this country. In fact, our own governments are responsible for that by committing to this UN agenda. So I wanted to make that really clear to people that, you know, the World Economic Forum is not the pinnacle of this, of this agenda. And that it's important to recognize that that the that the UN agenda is the pinnacle of of globalism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that 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 is very true. But since we're talking about World Economic Forum and the role of the World Economic Forum in the context of the globalist agenda and what it means and what it refers to, we need to, in that sense, um, analyze and put into perspective the role of the World Economic Forum over the past uh, 52 years, by the way. This was the 52nd meeting. The first meeting had taken place in 1971. And um, Klaus Schwab has been the CEO of this uh, forum for 52 years. So if you go back, Klaus Schwab was a young man coming out of Harvard, where he had come to attend uh, um, the uh, business program that he wanted to do. He got a background in engineering and then he was taking on business so that he could run his family business. Um, and there in Harvard, he was picked up uh, uh, and groomed by people like um, his mentors, Henry Kissinger, Herman Kahn, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, Zbigniew Brzezinski, and that these were the people who were the drivers of the Council of Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the Rockefeller Foundation, 
and so on and so forth. And these were the globalist platform or globalist uh, institutions, you know, going all the way back to um, the Woodrow election, uh, Woodrow Wilson election in 1912 and in 1916, which is the progressive agenda. So um, the, the Klaus Schwab led World Economic Forum was created as a networking instrument for the globalists, you know, and, and, and that's what he did. He brought together in one place, again, it would not have happened if people like Henry Kissinger and others were not on board. I mean, the very first conference, I believe, was addressed by Henry Kissinger. And again, Henry Kissinger is almost 100 years old now. This year, he will be 100 years old. Um, he was addressing the World Economic Forum on, on the Ukraine war. He has flipped now what he was saying a year ago about the Ukraine war. He has now changed his position. That means, again, this is an indication. It means that people like Henry Kissinger are the voices of the powers to be that manages them, the Rothschild, the Rockefellers, and so on. They, they, they don't appear on the platform. You know, they are the, they are the masters. Then you have the, the first tier of representation of these people, and those were the people who ran the governments in the Western countries. And I'm, I'm talking about Henry Kissinger because he was one of the more prominent personalities uh, in this period over the last half century um, in uh, global politics by being the national security advisor and secretary of state in, in the US administration of uh, President Nixon and then President Ford. So that's that's the thing. And, and, and the World Economic Forum um, facilitated the job that was given to them by the globalists to bring together from around the world people who they would be able to handpick and groom to be the next generation leader. Leader in the sense, they would be the peon. They would be the stenographers of the people who actually hold the power, the bankers, the industrialists, you know, and so on and so forth. So, <clears throat> Uh, in in that context, what I I would like to say, um, Mark, and make a prediction tonight, and you check me and hold me on to that prediction a year from now, two years from now, um, that the World Economic Forum, because of the events that have happened over the last four or five years, or going back to the election of President Trump in 2016. The World Economic Forum has reached the peak of its performance and influence. And from now it is on its decline and will very rapidly become a nobody. I'm going to phase out. Uh, possibly it will phase out once Klaus Schwab steps down or uh, he's called home by Lucifer to go into Dante's Inferno. You know, so that that will happen, you know, and it will happen 
within the next few years. But the influence of the World Economic Forum in terms of it became the clearinghouse, the talk shop, the grooming center of the ideas of the globalists and their agenda. And who, who were pushing those agenda was the member states of the European Union. Correct. I mean, it was the European Union members, and of course, you know, Davos is in Europe. It is in Switzerland. So, uh, principally, very important. Principally, it was the Germans. The Germans were the powerhouse in the European Union, the powerhouse in European politics. It was the economic power, the financial power, the industrial power, uh, uh, and I'm almost speaking in the past tense. It was the power, and Germany is now being destroyed. This, this is this so, is the change is taking place. So the European, remember, in the 2018, uh, that was before COVID, uh, the, which marked the hundredth anniversary of the end of World War One. There was the Berlin Conference. I've spoken about that on this platform, so I'm just recalling it for you, and that was one of the last gathering of all the European heads of state uh, in Berlin to mark the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. Uh, and then the world had, in terms of European politics, had changed. Germany had been divided after Second World War. Germany was united. Angela Merkel was the chancellor, and it was her last major uh, presentation. And it was in that conference that when uh, Angela Merkel very clearly stated that the European countries have to basically, if they're still holding on to the sovereignty, they have to give up their sovereignty to the European Union. You know, it's the end of sovereignty. I have that speech somewhere in my file. It was very clearly stated. And that was the message that was being sent to the global south. And after 2018, remember, that was in the December of 2018, before our 2019 election, that the big conference took place uh, under the UN banner, but it was pushed by the World Economic Forum about global migration and the compact on global migration that was signed by Justin Trudeau in 2018 in Morocco. So there were a number of agreements and these are all part of your UN Agenda 2030. So you, the Europeans were pushing this and through the push of the Europeans, it was being discussed on the World Economic Forum when the people came together from around the world at the invi invitation of the World Economic Forum to participate. And, and that's where the, the European push, the EU push, backed up by the American Democratic Party or the Uniparty, and that those policy were rubber stamped by the United Nation. What about the other countries of the world? They went along with it because they were promised, you know, redistribution of wealth. It would come through carbon pricing, carbon taxing, and so on and so forth. And they would be at the receiving end of the redistribution that was was promised to them. And so they went along, the African countries, the South American, Central American countries, the Asian countries, they went along with it, you know. Nothing was being asked of them in terms of climate change policies. 
the climate change policies in countries like China, India, Nigeria, South Africa, they were all exempt from all the various, you know, net zero and, and, and carbon pricing and so on and so forth. So this was a, a policy that emerged from the global north, that is the European Union, through the, the United Nations pushed on. And now, where are we? Five, six years later, where are we? The world is splintering. The West, the curtain is coming down. The unipolar system, that is what the Americans are fighting for and, and, and trying to protect and defend, in which the Europeans are simply a vassal of the American power. NATO controls them. That is now being challenged and is breaking apart. And at the World Economic Forum this past week, there are a number of things happened, and that's what leads me to make the observation well, that so, the World Economic so, Forum has reached the peak and it is in its now terminal phase. Sorry, so go I, ahead. Yeah, I want to show, um, there's people in the, in the chat asking if Klaus actually showed up, and yes, he did. And he made a speech that a lot of the focus in that speech was to do with dissidents and and how dissidents um, are are his focus. And it was really sort of weird and odd. I want to play a little bit of that for for yourself and, and for the people in, in the chat um, just to, to grasp a little bit of, of you know, what Klaus is feeling. <laughs> Thank you, Angelic and Amen for this uh, musical opening of the meeting. Your Royal Highnesses, Excellencies, distinguished heads of state and government, Excellencies, dear partners and friends of the World Economic Forum, a very cordial welcome to the 2023 annual meeting. We are coming together under the motto, Cooperation in a Fragmented World. At the beginning of this year, we are confronted with unprecedented and multiple challenges. First, our global economy is undergoing deep transformation. The energy transition, the consequences of COVID, the reshaping of supply chains are all serving as catalytic forces for the economic transformation. And everything that he mentioned was orchestrated by them and, and other actors. And the hotspots of this geo-economic remodeling are high inflation, increasing interest rates, and growing national debt. This is particularly hurting low- and middle-income groups. It is exacerbating societal fragmentation. Second, 
the geopolitical system is also undergoing deep systemic transformation. Internationally, we are moving to what some people would call a messy patchwork of powers. There are superpowers, emerging powers, middle powers, regional powers, rogue states, and also large corporate and social media powers, all competing increasingly for power and influence. As a result, the trend is again moving towards increased fragmentation and confrontation. Thirdly, our generation has reached a turning point, confronted by truly existential problems, climate change, exploitation of nature, nuclear possible incidents, or even worse, extreme poverty and viruses. They all can lead to an extinction of large parts of our global population. And we have... <laughs> so, uh, the extinction of large segments of our population. I mean, everything that he's talking about are things that they created. And so when you when you stack this up to what their overall agenda is, when we listen to Dennis Meadows speak about, you know, population reduction and depopulation from six, seven billion to one billion, um, <laughs> he's essentially confirming it for us. A word yeah. Am I still muted or? We can hear you, Slim. Oh, okay. Um, look, look, what, what I was saying uh, is what Kosovo says is simply the mouthpiece of the, of the powers, powers to be behind. I mean, I mean between 1771 and 1992, the World Economic Forum existed, but not many people paid any attention to it, uh, because the main issue in global politics was the Cold War. The world was divided between Soviet, Soviet Union and the United States, between the East and the West. And, and so, whatever the activity of the World Economic Forum was, was basically to keep alive the agenda of the Council for Foreign Relations, from the Natural Commission, and all of the other, the, 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 the group, the Bohemian Club, and so on. And keep them you know, uh, uh, in, in a, a sense, present to the people who were fought them. It, it was in 1992 with George, George Herbert Walker Bush announcement of the New World Order and the Earth Summit and the climate, the global warming issue that we then come to 
the current situation, the fate, the last 30 years uh, in the context of the unipolar world, which is uh, the American ambition, the neocon ambition. And uh, it would be America that would be the backstop because without America, there wouldn't be any globalist agenda. The Europeans would not be able to carry it, you know. And so there is George Herbert Walker Bush was a Republican, but he was a globalist. And then Clinton, then George Bush Jr., and then Obama. So <clears throat> quarter century of activity, the gap appeared with Donald Trump. So I'm coming back to it that the the World Economic Forum reached its peak moment in terms of its propaganda activity and its platform and its boasting that it makes policies. It didn't make policies. It did what the powers to be wanted them, them to do, what Clausewitz do, that is the Rothschild, that is, you know, uh, the Rockefellers, that is the J.P. Morgan, and the Chase Manhattan, and so on and so forth, and 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 you don't see them there. They they don't appear. They don't have to appear because their people are acting acting it out. So what I'm trying to draw attention to, in a historical sense, the the arrogance of the neocons and the Americans who followed the neocon policy or who projected the neocon policy, beginning with George Herbert Walker Bush, that America will not accept any rival in the world. It will be the unipolar hegemony of America. And anybody who questioned that will be beaten down. It will be the rule-based order. See, it is not about United Nations which is the only legal body in international politics that has the forum for international law. So it is the rule-based order. It was the rule-based order that is the UN Agenda 2030 because there was no opposition from 1992 onwards to the rule-based order which was carried through the World Economic Forum and pushed through the European Union and rubber stamped at the UN agenda, uh, at the United Nations Forum, because the Soviet Union did no longer existed. The Warsaw Pact countries no longer existed. The alliances that existed before 1992 that divided the world between East and West and the non-aligned countries no longer existed. China, you know, was basically a third world poor country, just as India is. And, and they, were, they were expecting this offshoring that was taking place. And offshoring was also part of the UN, uh, sorry, the globalist agenda, because it would, you know, lower down the wages. It would provide, you know, cheap commodities coming out of China, right? And, and the entire offshoring that took place, not only to China, but to India and to the Asia Pacific region, it was all by design. And so to replace the hydrocarbon uh, economy by this renewable energy, by you know uh, the Green New Deal and so on and so forth, these were all basically part of the global north. And that, policies were also within the context uh, 
of depopulation and deindustrialization. Right? Yep. The thing that has happened now, what happened at this uh, World Economic Forum, there were two or three very important things that happened that, that I don't think our media has paid any attention to it. Number one, the finance minister of Saudi Arabia, there was no crown prince or the king attending. It was the finance minister who attended. The finance minister of Saudi Arabia, a man by the name of Al-Jadan, at the World Economic Forum announced he was not looking for the World Economic Forum to make the policy for Saudi Arabia. He announced Saudi Arabia's policy. And the Saudi Arabia's policy was that Saudi Arabia will from now on be open to the export of oil, petroleum products, gas, uh, in currencies apart from petrodollars. That means Saudi Arabia was now going to trade with China, with Russia, with India, and with all the other countries of the global south in their currencies. And they are going to build up an alternative currency to the petrodollar. So this announcement is so significant. It would not have happened a year ago. It did not happen two years ago. It is happening now. It is a result of the war that began in Ukraine. And what is significant is that the petrodollar arrangement that came into being in 1973, in 1971, Nixon went out of the gold standard in the context of the Vietnam War. And in 1973, United States and Saudi Arabia partnered together that all uh, hydrocarbon purchase would be made in US dollar. And so the world, all the countries around the world had to buy US dollar or invest in US treasury bills to be able to do the trading. That is coming to an end. That is the unipolar moment that is coming to an end, you know. Then there was the announcement, um, which was not done by any government official from Iran, but it was discussed in, in the context of the World Economic Forum of uh, Iranian oil export has now reached uh, the same level that was there before the Americans and the Europeans started putting sanction on Iran. So Iran has come back in terms of its own uh, production and its relationship and its alliance with Russia is going to change the direction of the Middle East. You see, those two announcements were extremely significant in terms of global politics, because what it signifies is a whole number of major countries, major in the global south, uh, are now recalibrating their foreign policy, their ge geopolitical interests away from the dominance of the Anglo-American power. You see, yep. and consequently, the main push that was taking place through the World Economic Forum in terms of propaganda, this new Green Deal, 
this change of hydrocarbon economy, this whole agenda of deindustrialization is going to come crashing down. It is, not, it is going to be unsupportable. And, and that is a Absolutely. good news. I'm not saying it is a bad news. It's a matter, matter to celebrate. The question will be, what about Canada? And where is Canada in all of this thing? And this is where you and I and others, we have been talking about it. The Canadian people have to wake up and say, you know, we have been taken for a ride. We have been impoverished. We have been destroyed. You know, for what? For an ideological purpose that has nothing to do with the interests of the Canadian people. Absolutely, 100%. Salim, I just want to let uh, this this guy ramble for a little bit longer and then we, yeah, can, yeah. we can come back and comment again. Seen how much dealing with those risks, such as COVID or global warming, have again fragmented populations. And finally, the fourth industrial revolution offers us tremendous opportunities. But at the same time, technologies as computing, quantum computing, blockchain, genetics, and so on, they also could create deep societal fragmentation. We have the ability to collaboratively build a more peaceful, resilient, inclusive, and sustainable world. But to do so, we need to overcome the most critical fragmentation. And the most critical fragmentation is between those who take a constructive attitude and those who are just bystanders, observers, and even go into the negative, critical, and confrontational attitude. But the spirit of Davos is positive, is constructive. It means investing into a greener and therefore more sustainable economy, investing into a more cohesive society by providing everyone with the appropriate skills and opportunities, investing into the hard and soft infrastructure that modern societies require. And here in Davos, it means despite all those challenges, it means particularly investing in the spirit and the practice of solving problems through mutual respect and cooperation. We believe that we can do it, that through collective responsibility, innovation, human goodwill and ingenuity, we have the capacity to turn the challenges into opportunities. Ladies and gentlemen, I have now the great pleasure and honor to introduce Alain Berset, President of the Swiss Confederation. So again, <laughs> the world according to Klaus uh, and everything that they need to destroy 
i.e. the values of Western civilization, to achieve this collective resolve, this, this, you know, this control over the people so they can achieve the goals of sustainable development. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, uh, World Economic Forum is no different than, you know, the people in our parliament in Ottawa or in the provincial legislature, that they think that they are the principal actor and that they are controlling power and they're going to control events. Whereas events and power is in so many different ways, far more diffuse than what these people think, you know, that they have in their hand the capacity to control it. And this whole notion that people are robots, which is basically what the big guru of uh, Klaus Schwab, Yuval Harari keeps talking about, you know, uh, computing power, data, and the ability to hack human beings, you know, I mean, uh, they're going to put chips into our body, they're going to control our mind, and you know, we are just robots. This arrogance, where does it come from? It comes from the whole fundamental godless culture that they that they have adopted you know so they themselves are god they are in some somehow immortal that they somehow control the world and everybody eight billion people on this planet are going to bow down and say you know you my Lord, Klaus Schwab, you, my great guru, you all Harari and all of these people, Al Gore and John Kerry, you know, you are our master and we will follow you, you know, and they forget and or they never learned that history is far more complex, far more complicated, you know, and we individuals have a choice and maybe we in the north, in the, in, in the global north, to some extent, in some of the cultures like Germany or France or Britain, and to some extent, or, or, or to great extent in Canada, especially Central Canada, we have become, you know, compliant to our political bosses, you know, because we have had a good life. We have really had a good life when you think about it in global terms. That's why people wanted to come to North America, wanted to come to Canada, wanted to go to Britain from the global south. Because the global south, and this is not talked about enough, for the last 80 years or more, that is from the time of the end of the Second World War, has been on the receiving end of the brutal exploitation by the global north, you see? And after all these many decades, the global south is coming back on its own. They are, they are becoming much aware of their own culture, their own history, and technology and education is not only limited to one part of the world, it has been truly globalized, you know? So, there is going to be more and more resistance to the agenda that is the UN Agenda 2030, that is the World Economic Forum. And that resistance began in so many ways right here in the global north with Brexit, with the election of President Trump in 2016, and then the arrogance 
of the Obama administration and the Uniparty to dictate to China and to Russia. In the case of Russia, it was the eastward expansion of NATO to dismantle Russia, to bring about regime change. And they thought that they, they will not meet any resistance. And to the surprise of everybody, that is the people in power, they not only met resistance, all their calculation has backfired. I, I think it's interesting to point out to Salim that as as what you're saying and the global south sort of uh, coming alive and, and denouncing this globalist agenda because they understand it, uh, you know, it's, 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 they want their sovereignty. They want to make decisions that's in the, their own best interest around the world. Of course they do, as, as most others do. But what it's going to do, I think, is it's going to, is that imbalance is going to expose politicians like Trudeau political parties like the Conservative Party in Canada, the Republicans, the rhinos in the states, the Democrats, you know, and and throughout Western civilization and throughout the first world, it, it's going to expose them because all of these decisions that they've been making for a number of decades now um, is all going to work against our prosperity and 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 our way of life and and they're going to be held accountable for it um and and we're going to see that happen we're going to see that that come to fruit to fruition yes absolutely i mean that's going to happen and that's why um ukraine the war in ukraine becomes in a sense the centerpiece of what is happening at this moment, at this time in world history, and to understand that. Remember, wars are, in the sense, markers of transition from one system of political power to another system of political power in terms of distribution of power, in terms of balance of power. The collapse of Soviet Union in 1991 was the end of the bipolar world, remember? And so that's the moment when, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush and company uh, started, you know, talking about the unipolar world. That's the arrogance of the uh, uh, neocons, unipolar, one center. But anyone with a sense of history knows that at no point in the world has there been only one power that has dominated the world, you know, whether it was a lack of technology, of course, you know, Alexander the Great tried to conquer the world, but, you know, technology was not there and so on and so forth. Uh, so taking Alexander the Great as, as one in going back to the ancient world and then coming into the modern world, you know, the, the, the rise of the British Empire. But the British Empire was not a unipolar empire. There were others. There was the French Empire, the Spanish, and so on and so forth. And then within which rose the American Empire and also the rise of uh, Russia uh, as a power, you know, and, and then communism and so on and so forth. So this idea that America would be the unipolar power was one of the most arrogant, you know, uh, uh, idea that was pushed by the neocons. And behind that idea 
came all the idea that they would be able to, that is the progressive ideology, that they would have one center that would be the UN, you know, and go back to Woodrow Wilson, the League of Nations, that would then make the law. There will be no sovereignty, there will be no borders, and, you know, it will be the great power that will decide and it will decide to depopulate the world, to deindustrialize the world, to redistribute whatever they want, you know, they're going to do that. Well, it is extremely arrogant and and really without a whole lot of foresight or understanding of geopolitics, because there are 195 nations in this world and most of those 195 would like to determine their own destiny and would like to control their own, you know, progress, if that's what we want to call it. And so it's very short-sighted, it's very arrogant to think that somehow you're going to be able to corral all of these 195 nations into agreeing to a certain number of people's agenda and, and then control those nations through that agenda. It's it's extremely arrogant. Yes, uh, Mark, and 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 the the most important thing about being in touch with reality is to have a sense of history. You see, uh, and and that has been missing, greatly missing. I'm speaking from almost forty plus year of academic life, so it is not something you know, theoretical. I'm speaking, you can speak about law enforcement agency because you spent a major part of your life, you know, in, 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 in that profession. I spent 40 years as, a, as an academic in, in, in one of the better uh, universities in this country. <clears throat> and so I speak from experience. The weakness of the contemporary West, that is the weakness of the elite in the contemporary West, the people in the media, the people in the colleges and universities, the people in the institution, is the weakness of their knowledge of world history. Not only world history, but the history of their own country. You see, you as you and I are speaking right now at this moment, exactly 80 years ago, this moment, 80 years ago, 1943, the Battle of Stalingrad was taking place. The German army had been encircled in Stalingrad. They were rushing, they were pushing their way to the Caucasus and to the Caspian. Why? For oil. Without oil, without energy, there would be no army. You know, this is this modern day warfare beginning with the civil war in America is a war of industrial powers. So the German army was in a race. And in Stalingrad, the Russian confronted them. They had encircled Leningrad. They had come into the suburbs of Moscow. And the fights were taking place. But the reason I say uh, picking up on Stalingrad is because 80 years later, as you and I are speaking, in the vicinity of Stalingrad, that is in Ukraine, the same war is being fought. Instead of Nazi Germany, 
it is the unipolar power, America and the NATO countries. They have, they have attacked Russia. Any sense of history would have told them, don't do this. Napoleon tried it and he was destroyed. Hitler tried it. You know, a thousand year Reich Hitler was going to build. Supported by the Western powers. I mean, I'm not going to get into that history, but that history we need to talk about someday. And Hitler was rushing to dismantle Russia, just as the Americans set out the Ukraine war to dismantle Russia. And the war was fought. And the point is, 80 years ago, in February, a few weeks from now, the Sixth Army under Field Marshal Paulus was encircled by the Russians and defeated. At a cost, according to the numbers that I have, something like 1.2 million Russian died in Stalingrad. 1.2 million Russian and 800,000 uh, Germans. That's almost 2 million people that are soldiers died in this battle for Stalingrad. But then it was the turning point and the war turned. The Germans were defeated and then began the pushback. And then over the next little over two years, the war came to an end when the Russian army went into Berlin. And the point to take away is that the powers at that time, particularly Britain under Churchill, thought, you know, once the war is over, the world will continue in its own way. British Empire is there. Churchill boasted that he would not be His Majesty's last prime minister supervising the end of the British Empire. Under him, it would not end. But the war ended and Churchill was out of office and the British Empire came to an end in a twinkling of an eye. And, and, and I'm taking up that example that the Ukraine war will end. And I hope it ends without any nuclear escalation because that is the greatest fear. But once it comes to an end without a nuclear war, that is the Russian army moves into and brings about the surrender of Kiev, which is going to happen, then Europe is going to be on its knees because Europe went along with America as a vassal. Twice in a lifetime, Germany will have become deindustrialized. At the end of Second World War, Germany was deindustrialized, but America was the biggest power at the end of the Second World War, financially, economically, industrially, and, and America went into helping rebuild Europe through Marshall Plan. But that was America in 1945. When the war ended, America became a bigger industrial power as a result of war production. And America was not damaged. America did not suffer anything during the war as Europe was devastated, as Russia was devastated as a result of the war. So America was the giant. But today, America, under Joe Biden and the Uniparty, America is a net debtor country, $31 trillion in debt, hyperinflation, 
its borders open, its cities, great cities like San Francisco and New York and, you know, L.A., they are like the city where I was born. People are sleeping in the street. You know, so it has become, parts of America has become third world country. And the technological power of America is no longer a monopoly of America. It has been offshored. Science is now globally available. You know, the, the Russians are now demonstrating their capacity, despite the sanctions, their capacity to manufacture whatever they need. They're self-sufficient. The Chinese are going to be self-sufficient. The Indians are going to be self-sufficient. So what I'm trying to say, it is a very interesting point in time we are talking about. All the assumptions in 2018 and 2019, that is before the COVID, are all gone through the window. Now we know that COVID was a war against your own people. What I, talking about from my own perspective, if, you know, until this 2020 election, you know, which you and I were discussing on that night, when the election was happening, you know, and we saw the rigging take place or suspected it when it, it shut down. Before this election, I never paid attention in the sense that I didn't go down the rabbit hole questioning JFK's murder or 9-11 because I didn't want to believe that a democratic government would be attacking his own people and massacring his own people. Now all that doubt is gone. The scale has fallen from my eyes. I'm questioning everything. And I don't think I'm alone. Because you're, for the you're first time in history, you find a democratic government make its own people its enemy. 100% very well said. And, and Salim, I think as part of the exposure that all of these people leading us to our demise will face. And, and as we go through this process, I think self-sufficiency, self-reliance, not only down to an individual level, but I think as a, as a, as a, at a national level, I think that's where we're headed. And, and, and I don't necessarily mind that. I don't necessarily, and you know, and, and at the end of the day, the world is still going to need the resources that we have plenty of. And so, you know, as we go through this, I think we're going to come out at the other end uh, in good shape. As long as, you know, we keep doing what we're doing and we keep educating people so people understand what's, what's at play and what's happening. Um, you know, I think at the other end of this, once we've gone through the pain that's ahead of us, um, we come out the other side I think in, in, in much better shape, proving that all of these globalists, all of these sellouts um, are exactly who we said they were, right? That's absolutely. And, and, and I, I will add to that. I mean, there's so much more to add, but I will add this to the, what you just now said. There is a deep awakening that has taken place and is taking place. And I emphasize the word deep. People who are waking up, are waking up by questioning everything that has happened to them 
not only over the last few years, but through their lifetime, particularly the Americans. And you can see how desperate the people in Washington is, you know. Now they're trying to get rid of Joe, Joe Biden by the very example and attack that they did on, uh, uh, on Donald Trump with all this document and, and, and everything when they hid all of them. But now they're using the same argument to get rid of Joe Biden, and, and that will happen. The, the, the point is now is that this deep awakening in making the American public uh, even more politicized, but politicized in the sense that they no longer trust their government. Yeah, and it, it's creating what I see as a healthy cynicism. And, and people need to have that cynicism because their, their governments and their representatives are just that. And so people need to have those scales coming off so they can see what, what their governments have done to them. They're responsible for the deaths of, of hundreds of thousands of people. Billions. We are not talking in in millions. six figures. We are talking in seven Around the figures. World. Millions. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it is. It's, it's tens of millions of people, and 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 the excess mortality, excess death, is only beginning to count now. It is going to escalate. Sure so 2023 is. is going to be the hinge year. I think it's so. going to be the pivotal year. Yeah. About Canada and about Canadians, you know, I have my skepticism because we are truly a balkanized country uh, because we have, by design again, it's not the people, but by design, this is what has brought the situation to the people. We no longer is a country with a cohesive identity. Yeah, but we're also, mean? we're also very spoiled. We're also very spoiled. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're right? spoiled, of course. Yeah, yeah. But 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 there is no cohesive identity. You know, I mean, this, this is this is what what is missing in Canadian politics, because we have become balkanized. We have become high. We became hyphenated, and it did not happen. You know, in one short year or two short years, it happened over the last half century, and that has been internalized. You know. So where there is that sense of uh, a cohesive identity, which is in the rural Canada, as you and I have spoken about it, yeah. it is there we hope the changes will come. Yes. Voices will emerge yes. and people will ask those fundamental questions about Canada and about Canada's national identity. You know, at the end of... Uh, the Cold War, that is the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a lot of debate about what will be next. And we all remember, we all know, I used to use Samuel Huntington's book with, from, with my students as a required reading, that is the clash of civilization. Right. Huntington's basic argument was that national politics will move away from national boundaries to cultural boundaries. That's the clash of civilization, you know. Um, 
So what what is our that is Canadian? What is our culture? What is our civilization? We have made our country a godless country. We have attacked the fundamental founding values of Canada or of the Canadian people, that is Christianity. We have terrorized Christians. We have attacked the fundamental foundational belief system. Yes. And that has to be rediscovered because without it, there is no moral strength. 100%. Absolutely. There is no integrity. And you and myself, my friend, are playing an integral role in this, and we're going to continue to do it. And, uh, I, you know, I think as far as tonight goes, we'll probably end it there. But, but sure. uh, you know, there's there's others that are doing this work as well, and it's God's work, and, and, and reinvigorating um, and, 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 and re-educating people to understand that, you know, all of these values that we claim to cherish were founded you know, on Christian values, we're founded Western civilizations based on Christian values. And we have to go back to that. And we have to go back to, um, you know, a sense of spirituality and, and, and reconnecting with, you know, your spirit. And, and, um, you know, that's where the truth is. And, you know, we'll get there. It's, we're going through some pretty rough times, and it's going to get a little rougher. Uh, But, you know, I think in the end, we come through this, um, but it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of energy on a lot of people like yourself and myself and others. Well, well, if you, if you permit me, I would say this would be my parting word for tonight. We are in a very rough night. There's a war going on. We are in the, in a, in a sense in World War Three. Uh, but it is an all-spectrum war. So there's there's a different dimension. There's economic, financial bio and and so on so we are going to, and we are we are all praying that it doesn't escalate to the nuclear level so we are in a very difficult moment in world history but you know what mark we are also very privileged to be alive because we if we come through this valley of death we will enter a new age yes a new beginning 100 percent and to be alive and to be in that some small ways instrumental in entering the new age, the deepening awakening that will lead to the making of the new age of greater freedom, greater respect, multipolarity, and so on, uh, would, is, is, is truly exciting and it's a privilege in that sense to be alive. And eternal gratitude to the good Lord to give us the chance to see that happen. Here, here, my friend. Thank you very much, Celine. Thank you, and and good night, my friends. Good night. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah. All right. Bye bye. Ciao for now. All right, another uh, fantastic session with our good friend and national treasure, Salim Mansour. Um, yeah, very very wise man. And uh, if only we could get more people to listen to what Salim has to say, uh, we'd all be far better off. Um, but, yeah. Anyways, that's going to be a wrap for tonight. Um, thanks for coming by. Thanks for sharing it out. 
And uh, I do have that, you've probably seen on the bottom, to donate, info at ffcs.info. So this time of year is uh, is really tough on us because I have zero income uh, coming in with the business because we're relatively seasonal. Get the odd job <coughs> here, and, here and there. And I just got a, <coughs> a massive bill for my stream yard, uh, 600 bucks. So... Um, that's why I popped that up if, if, and I know everyone's in a, in a tough spot and things are tough these days. So whatever, if, if anybody can, uh, can help keep the lights on for this show and what we do, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, again, whatever, uh, I understand everyone's in a tough spot these days. So, uh, it is what it is. Uh, but whatever it is you can, it's greatly and uh, enormously appreciated. Anyways, that's going to be a wrap for tonight. Uh, I, I truly appreciate each and every one of you. I love you. Um, and globalism, bad. Nationalism, good. All right. That's a wrap. Ciao for now.